I invite you today to turn to the book of John, chapter 1. We are uh, working our way through the Gospel of John with this theme, Life in Jesus, the Son of God. John writes his entire Gospel here with this premise that, that we would believe on Jesus. We would see the things that he has done and we would believe on him as the Son of God, that he has come to give us eternal life. And so we're going to be in John chapter 1 today. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 28 with this idea of the witness of the Word. We're going to begin to to look now at at what John shares. We've taken the last several weeks, and we've gone through what what we would call the prologue to the Gospel of John. Those first 18 verses of John 1 really kind of set up the entire book of John. And now we're into this portion where we see the works that Jesus did. We see these things that John recorded, how Jesus teaches and what, uh, what he does who prove that he is God. And it begins today with a look at John the Baptist, how he gave witness to who Jesus is. Would you follow along with me there as we look at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28? Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And as as the prophet Isaiah said, Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Father, we we thank you now for the opportunity we have to open your word, to learn from it today, to be challenged from it, Lord, we ask that you would truly speak to our hearts from your word now. Lord, I pray that you would guide my thoughts and words today. I would not say anything that would take away from what you want to do here today, and that you would truly challenge us. Lord, I pray for one who is wrestling with eternity, with why they are here and what will happen to them when they die, that you would show them the glorious hope of Jesus Christ today through the testimony of John. Lord, for Christians, that you would challenge our hearts today that we live and breathe and work according and for your glory today, that we would seek to reach others with the message of the gospel. Lord, above all, may you be honored and glorified by us all of a sudden done. In your name we pray. Amen. Sometimes in our lives, it is the appearance of a sign or something that's pointing ahead to something else that gives us hope for the future. And as I thought about that this week, I guess the thing that I thought of first, you know, living in Michigan, is uh, something that that happened in our home um, this past year, is when my son made a big deal one day, looking out the back door and saying, look, there's the first bird of spring. There was still snow on the ground, but in his mind, it was the first bird of spring. It's, it's a wonderful thing, right? I mean, don't you just enjoy, you know, February, March, probably more March, April, when those birds start to show up and you think, okay, there's hope, right? There's a light at the end of this white tunnel that we call Michigan winter, 
and, and it's coming, right? That, that, that sign is that, is that there's something, a change coming. There's warmth coming. And last week, I mentioned to you um, in the opening that, that I had read a, a book to my children this past year called The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And if you'll excuse me, I know that pastors reference The Chronicles of Narnia and other things like that a lot. We, my wife and I joke about that. But I'm going to go back there this week, and I, I can't promise you, but mostly can guarantee you I'm not going to go back there again next week, okay? But I want to go back to that story, if you've ever read it. And if you haven't, let me just tell you briefly what happens in that story. In this book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are four children who are transported from this world to another called Narnia. And when they, when they arrive in Narnia, they, they learn a horrible truth that it has been, for over 100 years, it has been always winter and never Christmas. Because the land of Narnia has been under the rule of the evil white witch. But however, as you begin to read the story, you begin to sense that there is hope amongst the residents of Narnia because there was a prophecy in the land of Narnia that foretold that one day two daughters of Eve and two sons of Adam would appear. And when that happened, there would be a change that would come. There would be victory that would be given over the white witch and deliverance would come to the land of Narnia. But this deliverance doesn't come from the children. No, this deliverance comes from another character that C.S. Lewis wrote about. His name was Aslan. He was a lion. The Pevensey children brought hope that was not in themselves, but in one who would follow them in bringing deliverance. And and I tell you all that to to illustrate this point, that in John chapter 1, we have met a man who came preaching a message A message that was long awaited by God's people. See, John the Baptist pointed the way to Jesus. John was not the hope, but he was what we call the witness to the word. He prepared the hearts and lives of God's people to receive salvation through God's Son. And the word, of course, here doesn't refer to to just the Bible that you're holding in your hand. We're talking about God the Son. We're talking about the incarnate word of God, Jesus himself. And in this passage today, in these ten verses, we, we see that what John said about his own identity and the actions that he undertook as part of his ministry. See, John the Baptist played an important role in God's plan. But he continued to serve God faithfully in humility and selfless service. And what we see, just just plain and simple here today, is that John the Baptist pointed others to Jesus, the promised Messiah. And so we're going to unpack this today and see just in two, two, really just two points, how he does this in both his identity and the actions that he took. And we mentioned John the Baptist briefly a couple weeks ago, but over these next several weeks now, we're going we're to begin to look at more of what, what he did. And, and of course, remember, in the book of John, John the, 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 the apostle never refers to himself by name. So when he talks about John, he's talking about John the Baptist. And what we see here in, in verses 19 through 23 is we see the identity of the witness. We're talking about John the Baptist. Verse 19, now this is the testimony of John. And we touched briefly on him, but I just want to remind us who John the Baptist is, where he came from, what his mission was, so that we can go forward with the rest of this passage. John's beginnings are miraculous, because he was born to a childless couple. 
Zacharias was a priest. And, and so he was from the tribe of, of Levi and, and his wife Elizabeth. They had no children. And one day an, an angel appeared to Zacharias while he was in the temple doing his, his priestly duties. And by the way, if there's anything that should scare you, it's if you're in the temple and, and, and an angel appears to you, right? Because, and, and with great fear, these people, he, he received him. And, and that is true because he wasn't sure why he was there. Right? And what message he came to deliver? He came to deliver this message that, that John and Elizabeth, or that Zacharias and Elizabeth would have a son. They were to name him John. Now, Zacharias had his doubts about this, and in fact was not able to speak until after John was born because of the doubting, the doubts that he had about God's promise. But from the promise that, that the angel made, that, that God gave through this angel, John's role was already predicted to be special. He was even called to live as a Nazarite. A Nazarite was a vow that people took under the law of God. And what it was, it was a, con- it was a life of consecration that was lived to the Lord. There are, there are several Nazarites that are mentioned throughout Scripture. You, you most probably know the one named Samson. He was supposed to live as a Nazarite. He didn't do that very well. But it was a calling that God had placed on his life. And we read that John the Baptist is actually the first witness to Jesus, the Messiah, before he's even born. Because six months later, after the, after the angel appears to, John, uh, to Zacharias, uh, Elizabeth visits her cousin, visits with her cousin Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus. And, and the, the scriptures tell us that when Mary entered, that John the Baptist left in the womb because of the presence of the Messiah though they were not born yet. And after John's birth, we really don't know much about, really anything at all about his early life. In fact, John the Baptist lives in obscurity until one day he begins his earthly ministry. This was, this was somewhere around the time that he was 29 or 30 years old. And, and some believe that the date for this will be somewhere around December of the year 26 AD. And see, here's what happened for 400 years Israel had a waited word from God. We're going to look in a few minutes at the last recorded words of God from the Old Testament. But, but understand at the end of the book of Malachi, which is the last prophet that appeared, there, there had been nothing from God for 400 years, often called the 400 silent years. And now, one day, a man, John the Baptist, appears on the scene and begins to preach the things of God again. He really is the last Old Testament prophet, the messenger of God. His dynamic, strong preaching stirred the hearts and the minds and the ears of the nation of Israel. And he called on the people to prepare themselves and to prepare their hearts for the arrival of the Messiah. He says in Matthew 3, 2, and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, this is Incredible news, right, for, for a, a nation that for hundreds and thousands of years have heard prophecies of the Messiah ever since the fall of man, this Messiah had been prophesied. And now here is John the Baptist preaching on these things. And see, John seeks to turn the hearts of God's people away from sin and turn back to God. And then he began to baptize people. That's why he's called John the Baptist. John, John isn't called John the Baptist because he was a preacher of a local Baptist church, Okay. He was called John the Baptist because he baptized people. And baptism was a sign, an outward sign of this inward decision they had made to repent from their sins, to turn back to the Lord. And the peak of John's ministry came 
when he baptized Jesus. And it's at this baptism that the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove and God from heaven confirmed the identity of his son. And after Jesus' baptism, he went into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. He endured the temptation of Satan and he victoriously repelled Satan's attacks with the word of God. And so it is after the temptation of Jesus and the victory that he won over Satan there after his fast in the wilderness that our story takes place because Jesus then returns to where John the Baptist is. And that's where we're going to pick up in John chapter 1. And here, what we have recorded over the next couple of weeks, we have three consecutive days. And on these days, John emphasizes again and again the truth of who Jesus is. And today, we see the first of these encounters and observe what John says about his identity and the methods of his ministry. And so, what we have here when we talk about the identity of the witness is we have John first in his own denial of personal deity. See, here is John's testimony about himself and about Jesus, the Messiah. He says, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Again, we see this word testimony, and we understand that, if if you remember a few weeks ago, that, that this is a legal term. It talks about someone being a witness in a court of law. And so here is John who has to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about who Jesus is. John the Baptist is the first witness that John the Apostle has called on to testify the truth of Jesus. And on this day in John's ministry, there are certain Jews who have come seeking answers about his ministry. You see, John attracted great crowds. And those who are in Jewish leadership were trying to ascertain who this man was. And and here we run into a word that that John the Apostle is going to use in his gospel quite frequently, and, and it's the word Jews. And, and, and John uses that word in different ways. By context, you have to discern that. But, but most often, John uses the word Jews to refer to the religious authorities who are focused mostly in Jerusalem who are opposed to Jesus. Okay, So, so when you see that term here, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the, the religious leadership of Israel. And, and as, as the gospel progresses, as the story of Jesus progresses, there, there is an increasing hostility between the leadership, specifically focused around the ruling group, which is called the Sanhedrin, and Jesus Christ, who, who is claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah. And they don't believe that about him. And so... There are, there are these group, there's this group that, 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 under, that governs over the people, the Sanhedrin, under the Roman authority, but who ultimately presides over the nation. And they needed to take interest in what John was saying. I mean, these men are the custodians of the faith of the nation. So they need to pay attention. However, the Jewish leadership misses who Jesus is and doesn't believe in him. And, and as we said, becomes increasingly hostile towards Jesus as time progresses. And on these day, on this day, there, there are representatives from this group who arrive where John is doing his work, and they have a burning question. Now, we, realize, we understand here that this group is made up of priests and Levites. The priests are those who went between God and the people, who, who helped the people worship God, who helped the people uh, be right with God, who carried out the, the sacrifices as God had prescribed. And then you have this other group, the Levites, And some believe that 
In this case, the Levites that came with them served as some type of protection for those priests. And we're going to see later on in this passage that at least some of this group belong to a, a sect called the Pharisees. And they want to know this question, who is John? Because in a nation that for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years that has been expecting a Messiah, they want to know, is this the Messiah? Is this man who is now out in the desert talking about the coming of the kingdom of God, is he the promised one? And indeed, that question seems to be implied when they say here in verse 19, who are you? Is this one declaring God's kingdom close at hand, the long-awaited Messiah, to set his people free? And we deduce that that's what they're asking because John gives a very strong reply in verse 20. He confessed and did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. The Christ, that when John uses there, and he talks about this vehement denial of being the Christ, John strongly records what John the Baptist said. Now, remember, there are still some, when this, when this gospel was written, there are still some who subscribe to that, that John the Baptist was the Messiah. So John the Apostle is, is reinforcing again that concept that John is not the Messiah. He was not that one, but he was the one who gave witness to the light. And that John the Baptist never claimed this. He outright told them he was not the Christ. And, and Christ is the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. It means the, the chosen one, the anointed one, the sent one. Okay? Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It is a title. Jesus the Messiah. John was not the one promised for hundreds of years. John was not the fulfillment of the law of God. John was not the victor over sin, the holy son of God. And so that leaves the question then, who is he? And you can understand, I mean, these men, they find out very quickly, he's not who they thought he was going to say he was. And so they have some follow-up questions, right? We begin to get down in verse 21, and they ask them, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Perhaps they think he is the prophet Elijah. Now, the Jews expected Elijah to return, to return to earth before the Messiah came to establish his kingdom. See, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet who had served God faithfully when the, when the kingdom of Israel, when the land of Israel had split into a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah. Elijah had served in that northern wicked kingdom of Israel, primarily under a king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And one day... Elijah was with his protege, Elisha, and God took Elijah in a whirlwind, a fiery chariot to heaven. He, just, he was there, and then he was gone. And so the Jews expected that one day Elijah would return. And they get this from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. These are the very last words of the Old Testament. And it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will return the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So this man, who suddenly appeared out of seemingly nowhere, seemed to fit the bill. And so it's not just some, you know, let's pull a random prophet out of a hat and ask him if that's who he is. But it comes from this passage, and it comes from who he was and what he was doing. 
we realize that there actually even is a similarity between these two men and their appearance. In Mark chapter 1, in verse 6, we read this. Now, now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt about his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, it is Elijah, the Tishbite. So, so certainly, you know, between those appearances, maybe they think, well, there he is. You know, we didn't see Elijah. He's been dead for hundreds of years, but, but we've read about him. So maybe this is him. And then certainly John's ministry, preaching against sin and seeking the people's repentance, was one that, that echoed what Elijah did. See, Elijah went and he preached against uh, sin. He preached against idol worship. I mean, in, in, in the book of Kings there, we have a very famous showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah seeking to turn the hearts of a very godless nation back to God. And here is John the Baptist doing the same, seeking to turn the hearts of the people back to God. In fact, it was even prophesied that, 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 that John's ministry would be like that. In Luke 1, verse 17, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. So that question, are you Elijah, isn't an unfounded question. But though John's ministry resembled the ministry of Elijah, he was not Elijah. He was not the exalted, powerful man of the Old Testament that God had used in such a mighty way. And so another question comes up. Well, if you're not Elijah, they say, then what? Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They wish to know. Are you simply the prophet? And again, we may need some help understanding what is meant here. That's why we read from Deuteronomy chapter 18 this morning to to help us uh, kind of set the stage for that in our minds. It is obvious that that this was understood by John and the Jewish audience. When, When they asked, are you the prophet, everybody there knew what he was talking about. He was talking about the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'll give you verses 15 and 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst and from your brethren. Him you shall hear. In verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this promise was one the Jews looked forward to. I mean, Moses is held in high regard in the, in the eyes of the nation of Israel. And so he says there's a prophet like Moses coming one day. And it seems that some thought that this prophet would be a forerunner of the Messiah. And that's what they were asking. Really, in essence, what they're asking is, are you that prophet who would come before the Messiah? What they've missed, though, is that this passage in Deuteronomy isn't talking about someone who would come before the Messiah. This passage in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is actually talking about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus, that he would be the prophet like Moses. So without even realizing it, they've asked a redundant question. They asked initially, who are you, implying, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah? And now they said, are you the prophet, which, in essence, they've just asked, Are you Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who would come? Unsurprisingly then, John denies that he is this prophet as well. And it's interesting to note that as these questions have gone on, have you noticed that John's answers have gotten shorter and shorter? You know, he says, who are you? I am not the Christ. Are are you Elijah? I am not. And he says, are you the prophet? He just simply says, no. No. 
And so, to no one's surprise, those asking the questions still seek answers. I mean, just look at verse 22. And as you look there, in your own mind, just sense, don't you sense the exasperation? And they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? I mean, here, here they come, right? These, these priests, these leaders of Israel, and they, they got it figured out. You know, if it's not this guy, it's going to be this guy. If it's not this guy, it's going to be this guy. And the answers have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter. And they just say, okay then, fine. You're not any of those people. You've got to tell us who you are. You have got to, to tell us so we can go back and tell the people who sent us exactly who you say you are. And here we see the affirmation of who John is, and we get a glimpse of even how he views himself. In verse 23, we do see the affirmation of the prophetic office that John holds. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. This is John the Baptist's self-identification. And what it is, is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It says in Isaiah 43, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, now understand that Isaiah chapter 40, and, and oftentimes happens in, in the prophets, there's an initial fulfillment of a prophecy, and you don't realize sometimes that there is a later fulfillment of this prophecy having to do with Jesus or having to do with the kingdom of God. And so initially... The context of this prophecy has to do with Israel's return from captivity. Israel and, and Judah have, have been taken away into captivity, Israel to the Syrians and, and Judah to the Babylonians. But, but one day God promised to return his people to their land. And the voice cries out that there must be a road made for the exiles that they would return home. As one author put it, this voice is in essence crying, prepare yourself for God's salvation. And initially, they had to prepare themselves for God's salvation from captivity. But now John is a further fulfillment of that. Prepare yourselves for salvation at the hands of the Messiah. He is a servant of the Lord. And, and while John is fulfillment of the, a prophecy, and this prophecy in particular, he is actually, in his own mind, no one special. See, John declares this about himself. Go back to verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. You know, it's interesting. A voice is important to declare the message, but it is not predominantly promoting the speaker. You, You cannot see a voice. You can only hear it. John was one who was not full of himself. Even his description of what he was doing was not glamorous. Make straight the way of the Lord. Really, this picture of making the way straight for the Lord is a picture that comes from a king's convoy that would be going into a land. And what they would do is they would send these slaves, they would send these people ahead to what? To make the road level, to to make sure the road was ready so the king could come through. It's not a glamorous job at all. John's mission was not to build a ministry, but to spread the message of the Messiah. 
His life was a life devoted to someone else. He is the embodiment of what it means to serve God solely with our lives. You know what? John the Baptist is a challenge to all who claim to know Jesus Christ. We are not called to make names for ourselves. We are not called to build the biggest churches, to amass the greatest number of converts, or to rake in the biggest offerings. We are called to faithfully give the message of Jesus. That's what he's called each of his followers to do. Now, like John, we must be working, earnestly seeking the results, but realizing it is God who works, but it's not wrong to expect him to work. You know, sometimes I think that's, that's where we go, we get off sometimes, right? I, I was reading this this week, this idea, you know, is it our, you know, is it our responsibility to make someone come to Christ? Well, no, God has to do that work, Right? But sometimes that's how we treat it. We say, well, I mean, all I can do is plant and water. All I can do is, and we just, we give the gospel and we think in the back of our mind, well, I did my job, you know, they'll probably never come to know the Lord, right? No, we need to go out there expecting that God will work. We need to go out excitedly sharing the message of who Jesus is and what he's done and expecting him to do a great mighty work in people's hearts at the same time realizing it's God who has to do the work. We can work expectantly, and we cannot be disappointed serving our God who is always faithful. Of course, you know, it's not a guarantee that every person you ever meet is always going to respond positively, right? But at the same time, let us not be weary in well-doing. Like John, we need to realize it isn't about us. It's all about him. It's about God's kingdom, God's work, and God's glory. See, see, John the Baptist is holding prophetic office, is what we would call. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he is certainly the first major New Testament character before Jesus. But, as D.A. Carson put it, he did not detect as much significance in his own ministry as Jesus did. Jesus held John the Baptist in high regard. Jesus talked about how important the ministry of John the Baptist was, but John the Baptist doesn't seem to hold himself in that same regard. He did his job of pointing to Christ extremely well. And so when the identity of this man is confirmed, this delegation wants to know more than, okay, what are you doing, right? Because John is very clear, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, this is what I am. I am the voice. I am the fulfillment, yes, of this prophecy, but I'm just the voice of one who's crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. And so then we see the action of the witness. Verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So there's a question of methods here, because having answered the questions of the delegation, John is now put on the spot to answer for what he is doing. And here we see the ones that were sent by the Pharisees continuing to pursue this line of questioning. There were two main groups within Jewish leadership. There are two main sects. You have the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees. While the Pharisees adhered to the law and they spun that to their own advantages, the Sadducees were more religiously liberal in the things of God. 
And baptism was not a religious, religious rite or ritual within the law of God. You don't read about people being baptized within the law of God. So here's this guy who is not the Messiah. Okay, let's put it in their minds, because we know the Messiah and the prophet are the same person. But, but in their minds, he's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet like Moses. What are you doing? What are you doing out here creating something that people have to do as they follow God? Why are you undertaking this? Because in the minds of the Pharisees, they had nothing to repent from. They had no need to outwardly show repentance because in their minds, they kept the law of God perfectly. We'll see that as we go throughout the Gospel of John, the clash between the Pharisees and Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you've already seen it, right? Because here are these guys who think they have nothing to change. They're good. So why are you out here telling people they need to repent and be baptized? What gave this man this right to say such things? You know what's interesting They didn't realize that John wasn't worried about what they thought. He was not concerned with the approval of the Sanhedrin. You know why? Because his authority came from a greater source. It came from God. And I just want to take a minute and say, you know, in our world today, we have those in ruling positions in our own country who are much less spiritually minded than these people were. Now, these people were, were great sinners just like anybody else, right? But they, they, they covered it with this spirituality. We have people who tell us what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes they tell us what we can say and what we can't say. And as long as those things that go on do not hinder our obedience to the Lord, then as the scriptures say, we should, we should strive to live at peace with all men. We should show that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. But if they should tread on our obedience to the kingdom of God, there is only one right answer. Obedience to God takes precedence above everything else. And we can do so boldly, and we should. We we often don't struggle with the bold thing. But you know what else? We can do so humbly and respectably as well. We don't have to, to obey God and throw it in the face of people at the same time. You can respectfully obey God. You can respectfully and boldly stand for what God says. And John was fulfilling his mission to the Lord, and he answered all the questions that these men had with the truth of God and with grace. He answered their questions not as one in defensive posture, but as one who is right with the Lord. And that's where it always must start. We always have to start with, am I I right with the Lord? Am I obeying him? And here we see the service of John's methods to the glory of God and who was there even as he spoke these things. John says there is a service of his methods. John answered in saying, verse 24, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to unloose. John states that he baptizes with water. Nothing special about that is what he's saying. But what he's doing is is service to one greater. See, the baptism John administered had no saving power from sin. It's simply an outward sign of those who repented from their sin. And if you understand Jesus' command to be baptized after we're saved, it's the same thing. It's an outward sign of an inward change. Now, it is indeed a strong statement that a Jew would make. 
See, the, baptism wasn't some new concept. It was a new thing in the nation of Israel. I mean, there are those who would undertake baptism before this. Oftentimes, baptism was even self-administered because people would be identifying. Maybe it was with a, a new group of people or, or some kind of cult or something like that. And they would baptize themselves to say, I am identifying myself with this group. People even talk about perhaps even this was something that proselytes did as they came into the Jewish community. And so what a Jew was doing by, by undertaking this, this thing, this sign that John was talking about, was in essence telling other people that, hey, I'm no better than a Gentile. I have sin that keeps me out of a relationship with God. And you can see how that's very offensive to a group like the Pharisees. We don't have sin that keeps us out of relationship with God. We, we belong to the covenant, right? We keep these things. And, and so what John is saying, in essence, you are God's people, but, but God's law teaches us that we are sinners. And we must be right with God. It was a true message and picture of God's relationship with man. But, but this baptism was not the finished work to be done. No, that work was coming soon by one close by. John says in verse 27, or verse 26, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. John says, there's even one here right now. One who ranks above me that you have no idea who he is. Because Jesus' ministry had yet to begin, but as God He was preferred above John. And John recognized, once again, the service of himself to the kingdom. The religious leaders did not know who Jesus was, and sadly, most of them would never acknowledge him as the Messiah. But John served the will of God and saw himself as not even worthy to do the most menial task. He says, it is he coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. You see, unlatching someone else's shoes for them would be an extremely degrading thing for another person to ask someone to do. That's, that's the idea here. And even those rabbis who had those people following around them, it was prohibited. They're not allowed to ask the people who followed them, hey, can you, can you take my shoes off for me? That's a very degrading thing. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do this for the Lord. Why? Because he was consumed with the greatness of Jesus. If we are to come to Christ, we must be awed with his greatness. We must see our sinfulness in light of his holiness. We must acknowledge our coming judgment from a just God. If you are going to enter an eternal relationship with God, if you are going to find peace with God, you must acknowledge this, that I am a sinner, and because I have sinned, I am separated from a holy God. And because he is holy and just, there is a punishment for my sin. And only then can you see the love and the grace of God that is poured out in Jesus. If you think you are pretty good and you think you've got it all together, then you haven't fully seen God. He graciously shows us our sinful state that we may live as slaves no longer. And we are not worthy of eternal life outside of Jesus. 
And John declared the message of the Messiah every day through his actions and words. We read here in verse 28 that he was in this area called Bethabara, which is somewhere north outside of Jerusalem. And now the hope of all mankind is about to appear on the scene. The groundwork that John has laid for the Messiah is about to find its ultimate fulfillment. This witness to the word has shown and has shown us that indeed he is coming. And he requires us to come to him in faith forsaking our sin. And so let us submit ourselves to him. Let us throw ourselves at the feet of the King of kings and Lord of lords and of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And let us see, as John said, that John the Baptist pointed others to Jesus, the promised Messiah. John the Baptist testified very clearly that he was not the Messiah. That he was simply there to point to the one who was. He showed men and women their need to repent from sin that they may be right with God. See, here's the thing, sin, from the time we're born in this world, sin is all we know. And Because sin is all we know, it is not surprising that we often have a hard time coming to grips with its seriousness and its consequences in our lives. We spend our lives serving ourselves, trying to better ourselves, hoping to soak up every life experience or in search of something greater. But the scriptures are clear. You and I are sinners. We do wrong, and that puts us at odds with God. And even God's chosen people, the Israelites, had to come to grips through his law with this truth. That because of their sin, they were separated from God. The message that, that John preached this day, over two, about 2,000 years ago, still rings true today. You and I must repent from our sins. The word repent means to turn around and go the other direction. We are going this way in our sin. We must repent. We must turn from our sin and turn instead to Jesus Christ. Turn from your efforts of self-righteousness and throw yourself on the mercy, love, and grace of Jesus. Turn from certain destruction to guaranteed deliverance. And if you will do this, your soul will be saved from eternal damnation. Your life will be transformed, hope will be kindled in your heart, and your eternal destiny will be settled, and you will find new life in God. You will find strength from Him and see real victory in your life that you have never seen before. And Christian, if you sit here today listening to this message, I have this question, have you lost the wonder of your salvation? What is it? that you have given place to in your life instead of that. If you know Jesus Christ, you have been set free from sin and its destructive hold on your life. So don't hide in the dark. Don't give in to the self-focused old ways of the old man, but live in the light of the gospel. Do you live as one consumed as a witness of the word? If you've experienced Christ's salvation, there is nothing greater that can be your mission. Your personal comfort, hobbies, happiness, or all other pursuits must take a back seat to the message of the Savior. God does not call us to be bystanders to his work, but active participants in it.
And as we live in the light, let us share that light with others, giving all glory and honor to God alone. He has done incredible things for us. We owe our lives to him as witnesses to the word. Father, we thank you so much for the life of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came and lived a perfect life when we could not. We thank you that he fulfilled the demands of the law of God. We thank you that he died on the cross for our sins. That he paid the price that we owe as sinners. One who is perfect and just and righteous, the very Son of God, gave himself freely for the lost the broken, the sinful, those who would throw the things of God back in his face. What mercy and grace and love that is. Lord, thank you for John the Baptist who has proclaimed boldly this message who pointed to the Messiah. Lord, we ask that today you would do your work in our hearts that you would speak to us today, that would use your word to hammer home the truth of the gospel. Lord, for one who hears these things and is wrestling with eternity, who is not sure where they will spend eternity when they die, who, who doesn't have peace with God, who doesn't go home at night without questions and wonderings, Lord, would you show them those things can be settled in you today. Or for the Christian who who has lost the wonder of their salvation so much that they don't know which way is up half the time because they live in the dark. Who puts their own wants and desires ahead of the things that you have called them to do. Lord, would you convict that heart today to draw them to yourself and show them those things they need to surrender to you. Lord, we ask that you would continue to do your work in our hearts today as we depart from this place. Lord, would you continue to draw us to yourself. Would you give us the courage and the boldness to make these things right with you? Lord, we pray for a a great afternoon. Would you watch over and protect us and bring us back together to fellowship tonight and to hear from your word. In your name we pray. Amen.